and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, legends. I hope each and every one of you are having an incredible week. Whether you are strolling outside, basking in the beauty of fresh air, tackling household chores, or even multitasking with work while tuning into our podcast, I must say that's quite impressive. Personally, I can't imagine being able to concentrate on my tasks while someone else is talking, but that's what makes our community so special and remarkable. We are all wonderfully diverse and unique, and that is something to be celebrated and embraced. Before I introduce you to this week's guest, I wanted to remind you all of the sponsorship opportunity that exists. Just take a moment and let your imagination run wild. Picture the immense reach and impact you could have by sharing your story or promoting your product to our sensational and fiercely loyal listeners every single week. This opportunity is tailor-made for business owners whose values align perfectly with ours. If you believe that you or your business has the potential to add value and enhance the lives of our community, I invite you to reach out to me today. Don't miss this incredible opportunity. Applications for sponsorship are closing soon, so make sure you email or message me as soon as possible. Together, we can create a powerful and transformative experience for our audience while amplifying your brand's message. Get in touch today and let's embark on the exciting journey together. Now, let me introduce you to this remarkable individual, Linda from McCallum Performance. Linda's journey is one of courage, resilience and determination in the face of adversity. Linda and I go way back to college days at St. Albert's College, where we both attended the University of New England. Linda studied commerce law, followed by a diploma in education. She has gone on to train horses and coach others in the space of mindset, healthy living and horsemanship. In her career, she has had several impressive milestones such as Reserve Open Futurity Champion, Non-Pro Classic Challenge Champion and several Open and Non-Pro Aged Event Championships at Futurity Shows. Linda has represented Australia twice in the US as a member of a non-pro team and was inducted into the non-pro Hall of Fame in 2019. But that's not why Linda is on here today. Today she shares her story. In 2018, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, otherwise known as MS, a chronic autoimmune disease that affects the central nervous system. However, Linda's story is not defined by her diagnosis. Instead, it's a testament of her unwavering spirit and her refusal to let MS define her. During our conversation, we will explore the impact MS has had on various aspects of her life. We delve deep into her health, her performance, her relationships, and perhaps most importantly, her relationship with self. I assure you, this interview is unlike any you have heard before. Linda's honesty and vulnerability shines through as she shares her perspective on the world and the choices she has made to create the life that she wants to live. This interview is a treasure trove of wisdom and insights for us all. 
Linda's journey encapsulates the human capacity to overcome obstacles, adapt and embrace change. Her story reminds us of the true power that lies not in the challenge we face, but in how we respond to it. So whether you are listening to us driving on your daily commute, relaxing at home or embarking on a new adventure, I invite you all to lean in, open your hearts and minds and join us on this extraordinary journey with Linda. Prepare to be moved, inspired and empowered. So without further ado, let's jump right into this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm welcome to the incredible Linda from McCallum Performance. Thank you, Ali, for having me. I'm pretty excited. We've been getting a bit of a team of Albies people coming on the podcast. So Linda and I, just for anyone listening, Linda and I also went to college together. You were the year above me. I think I met you in the first, in O week, in our first week at uni. So we've known each other for a really long time, but haven't seen each other, I'd say for about 15 years. Yeah, I would say. And I don't know, you just look back on those times with such fond memories and... Oh. It was just the best time of my life where I've met my best friends forever. Yeah. Yep. And I love that we're still all in contact. You know, it took two minutes for us to connect and be like, hey, let's jump on and do this pod. And, you know, it's like there's always a thread there. Yeah, always. And there's a part of me that feels like that my friends from Albies know who I am without judgment and accept me for who I am without judgment. And I actually... Sometimes, you know, when I meet up with my friends, my girlfriends, or someone just sends me a message out of the blue, I actually feel really overwhelmed because I feel like I can be myself with them. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's some people you meet in your lifetime that, I don't know, it's hard to be yourself with. For me, it's been like that anyway. So my friends from Albies, I can be like Linda Watson or Watto as I was then and just who I am. And I don't have to be anyone or anything different. And I love that. And I always feel like it was such a privilege and I feel so blessed to have had that opportunity. Not everyone gets it. And I just think I was so lucky to be able to go there and and meet such fabulous people. You know, I worry will it change because the shenanigans we got up to and in the world that it is today, you know, I do worry that with red tape and, you know, the various way the world's gone or people can study from anywhere. And I think if I had that opportunity now, would I even go to college? I'd probably study from home to be honest. And because it wasn't really done as as well as it is now back then. So yeah, very lucky to be there. Linda, I love to start the podcast with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? I listen to your podcast all the time and I hadn't given this any thought for myself, (laughs) but it took me two seconds to think about it. And I would say a cheetah. Yeah. And the reason I would say a cheetah is I don't know if, have you ever read Untamed by Glennon Doyle? No, but it is on my list. Incredible book. And it starts with the story of Tabitha the cheetah. And it talks about how she had taken her children to a zoo and Glennon was in this part in her life where she felt quite suffocated by, I guess she'd followed all the normal steps of who she should be and who she needed to be, been to university, started a career, got married, had children, was trying to be super mum and do it all. And she took her children to the zoo and they went to the cheetah's cage. And at the cheetah's cage, they actually put on a performance where the um, cheetah's name was Tabitha and she had a best friend that was a Labrador. And they put on a show where they threw a 
pink bunny across the enclosure and you know the lab went and picked up the pink bunny and brought it back to the person who ran the you know enclosure the zookeeper next thing they did the same for the cheetah and it went come out like lightning you know flew across so fast and everyone clapped and got the cheetah and brought it back and they got a big you know piece of meat as a reward well she then noticed that Tabitha sort of looked up and she looked out And she just sort of had a glaze over her eyes and she was like, she knew that she was something else than what she was being in that moment. You know, she had everything she wanted. She had food, she had comfort, she had a companion in the Labrador. She had people that looked after her. She was actually someone that people wanted to see because they always wanted to go and see the cheetah show. But deep down, she knew she was someone else and she knew she was something more. And there's a line that says something about, no, Tabitha, you know, you you don't have to be a cheater in the zoo. You're a goddamn freaking cheater. And, you know, go and be a cheater. And that's what I just resonated with me. I love it because I feel like that happens to us so often. I was going to say as women, but as people, I think we be what we think we need to be in the moment. And sometimes we know there's more. And and you also mentioned there, like sometimes there's a road already set out for us in our mind. Like we go to uni, we get married, we have kids, you know, like there is kind of that. And we spoke very briefly about this and it may be a really good place to start is around that very thing. You finished uni, you went and got married, you had kids. And then there was a little bit of like, well, who am I now? Is that right? Definitely. For me, I felt like I, I... I was always in a rush to get to the next stage. I was quite ambitious, but I was always in a hurry to do, um, quote, unquote, what's right, you know, or what I thought I should do. And, you know, so I, I, I finished high school. I got a fantastic score. You know, I got 95 as my UAI then, but ATAR now. Thought I needed to, I wanted to go and, and study ag economics, but I went, oh my God, no, I can't do that. I'll waste my marks. I need to do something with this. So I enrolled in law. I did a combined degree, business law, and I didn't love it. So I finished my business and then did my dip it on the end. So I guess that was the start of doing what I wanted to do or listening to myself rather than what I think thought I should do. And then went to university. I stayed on campus for three and a half years and loved every minute of it. Best years of your life. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it so was. Oh my goodness, I look back at it now with such fondness. And yeah, then I went and started my career. I graduated in 2002, started my career. I was married. When I left university, I didn't know my current husband at all. Like I knew who he was, but we went together. And so when I left, we sort of got together and we were married by 2004, 2006. I had my first baby. So I was in such a hurry to, you know, try and tick the boxes and get things done. And I feel like I guess I was doing what I thought I should do. But looking back now, would I change it? Not really. But I'm not sure that I really knew who I was even before I had children. To now, I just feel like, to be honest, my husband and I are just getting to know who we were before as individuals because our kids are grown up and, you know, they they're haven't left home yet, but they're currently both overseas in different countries, which is hard in itself. But yeah, so, you know, you start to realize who are we even as individuals? Because all we've known is ourselves in that very quick party mode, got married, had kids and on the road, I guess. And it's funny you should say that because I was actually thinking I did a, I was a guest on another podcast the other day and the audience were in their twenties. And I realized afterwards I spoke 
like I'm in my 40s. And I thought, I really didn't pitch that right. Because in your 20s, it is about exploring and achieving and experiencing and, you know, all these colors. And as you get older, we it's true. We do. We get wiser. We start to slow down. We start to think about, well, what's really important to us? What have we missed? What do we want more of? What do we want less of? What's working? What's not, you know? And we so often say, I wish I knew that when I was 18, but would it actually change anything? And I think you just said that. Would you change it? We don't know. I don't think I would. And and I only, it's funny, I had this conversation with my mum this morning because it's my birthday this week. Happy birthday. And um, she was saying, how old are you? She said, you know, how, my mum said to me, you're 42. I said, actually, mum, I'm 43 this year. And she said, oh, wow. And I said, but I love my 40s. I love it. My mum said to me, I hated turning 40. She said, I felt like I was so old and I felt like I was losing everything I knew that I was because my mom had five kids, you know, they were growing up, they'd left home. That was her identity. Whereas for me, I love my kids. I've loved raising my kids. But for me, I feel like I have a new, exciting, I guess, stage in my life just beginning in my 40s and I love it. And also a lot of your friends would only, their kids would still be earlier teenagers, I'd imagine, because you, you had babies quite young. Yeah, so I had Peter when I was 26 and Olivia when I was 27. So there we go again. You know, I, was, I was in a hurry, a big hurry to get in and get things done. Yeah, a lot of my friends' children from uni summer still in early primary school. So yeah, I've only got one other girlfriend who has a son the same age as my children. So Yes, it, it is different. I'm in a different stage again. You're foraging the way for us. <laughs> we can ring you and be like, so what did you do when? <laughs> but it changes so quickly. It changes so quickly. And I really love being 40. It's been great. So let's have a chat then about before you were 40, because in 2018, you were diagnosed with MS. And I've heard you say before that it doesn't define you, but it was huge at the time. And it is still a part of your future. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what was happening for you around that time? Yeah, Ali. In 2018, I guess in the start of 2018, I just started to, I probably wasn't well for a few years when I look back. I lost my dad in a car accident in 2014. And that was a huge shock to our family. He was on his way to work, left in the morning and, and never come home. I do believe a lot in the mind-body connection. And I do believe that when we face those huge traumatic events, you know, where, where we have that trauma, whether it's reoccurring trauma from something in the past, from childhood or sometime, whether it's happening in the moment, the impact on our body, I believe, is huge. The same way I believe in the mind-body connection from a healing perspective as well. But for me, I think, you know, we lost our, my dad, it was incredibly traumatic and incredibly sad. So I just felt like I floated through life for a few years there. And then in early 2018, I just started to feel unwell. And I can't even explain how. I just felt really unwell. I felt like I just couldn't do my daily work. I felt like I had huge brain fog all the time. I was in pain a lot of the time, but I was very fatigued at the same time. And I just felt like my body couldn't do what it usually used to be able to do quite easily. And of course, I'm burning the candle at both ends. I'm going to the gym at that time. I'm riding, you know, eight horses before I go to work. I'm teaching casually. I'm, you know, I've got little children. Anyway, I was at an event around Easter time 
in 2018 and I started to feel a weird sensation in my mouth and my throat, almost like I was having an anaphylactic reaction. There was a different kind of catering van there and they had this type of chewy from Texas, it said, and it was, you know, we were in because we actually live that Western lifestyle. My son bought it, gave me a piece, and I thought I'd had a reaction to that, which is so bizarre, but I took so many histamines, still competed, but went to bed, just didn't feel great. Anyway, the next week I was pushing and burning the candle at both ends and racing around to get to another event the next weekend. And as I was driving along one day, I started to get numbness around my face and around my mouth, and it came on very quickly. And I thought I was having a stroke. And I couldn't get my husband on the phone. We lived half an hour out of town. So I drove myself to the hospital and I think I'm having a stroke. My face has gone numb, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they did all these tests and they said, no, I actually had a cold sore at the time. They said, no, I think it is just something to do with the virus that is in your body. So they gave me antivirals and sent me home. So that went on for probably six weeks, back and forth to the doctor saying, I feel unwell them telling me it's just a virus, you're okay, sending me home with new medication. And to one day I was so crook and I said to my husband, I'm going to sit at the doctor's and I'm going to demand to see a senior doctor because I'm so crook. So I went in, I sat there all day. They said they couldn't fit me into the doctors I wanted to see. So I I laid across the bench in the waiting room. I was so sick. Anyway, they kicked me out for lunch because that's what they did at the doctor's surgery in our town at that time I had to be back at two and when I went back at two a senior doctor called me and she ordered an MRI but she gave me a prescription for some medication that was meant to help for nerve pain they thought I had a neuralgia happening so I got the medication but I felt terrible and it's hard to explain I sat in the car outside the pharmacy read the leaflet that comes with the pharmaceuticals that you get at the time explaining the side effects, explaining what it's for. And I read it and said it was for psychosis, epilepsy, anything really that can be neurologically related. And I just, I had a bit of a meltdown in that moment going, I don't have any of these things. You know, why do I, why have they prescribed me this medication? And I had a bit of a meltdown, got sad. And then it's hard. I could, I felt like I couldn't drive. And that's been the hardest thing for me is when my bodily functions just aren't, they're not completely gone in that moment. And when I become unwell, this is what happens. I just become really weak and I can't utilize my body as strongly as I can otherwise. So I drove home at 60 k's an hour and my husband was home when I got there because he'd got the kids off the bus and he met me at the door of my car. And when I hopped out, I I couldn't walk. By that time, between being so emotional and everything that was going on with the inflammation in my brain, I couldn't walk. So he just put me straight in the car and I ended up in John Hunter, had a heap of tests and that's when they yeah, diagnosed me with MS. Oh, it's the part that's sitting with me when you say that is how hard you had to fight for something when you knew internally something was wrong, but you had to wait at the doctors and lie there all day saying something's wrong, I need to see someone else, you know? Like I just thought the courage that it takes to do that when you know something's wrong but everyone's saying to you you're fine, like that takes so much courage to keep fighting. That's been, I would say, one of the hardest things with my diagnosis is you look okay on the outside and to everyone else and often even since my diagnosis, I was very unwell for probably the first 12 months. It took, took me a lot of time to get myself back on a path of general health and well-being. 
that I felt even a fraction of myself again. It's been really hard on my relationships with other people and it's been really hard on forging forward in that I can be unwell but I look fine on the outside and I was so determined to try and fight this off with my lifestyle. So I was going to the gym and I started to look really well because I was eating well, sleeping well, exercising. And so I looked I looked great. The best I probably did for a long time. You know, I my skin was clear, my eyes were clear because I just cut out any rubbish. I was eating so healthily and I was on this path of trying to heal my body. And so I looked fine. And that was one of the hardest things was the judgment probably from other people thinking that I was okay. And that was really difficult. And I got a diagnosis very quickly. The average time it takes for somebody to receive an MS diagnosis from the time of their first symptom is usually about two to three years. And I look back and I think if I'd have stopped fighting at that time when I felt unwell, if I had just actually rested and um, got myself back that way, I could have gone on and on and on for quite a few years before I actually received a diagnosis. But because I pushed and I was so determined to keep doing my things that I was doing at the time and I did become very unwell, that's how I think I I did receive that diagnosis and I I just knew there was something wrong and I, I just needed to get help, I guess, so that I could continue doing the things that I enjoyed. And I really resonate when you talk about, you know, the unseen, what people can't see, because I had my stroke, which was very much a brain injury where people, I looked and sounded like this in ICU. And then now I have POTS. It's the same thing. I got asked a question last Friday night on a keynote. They said, what's been the hardest moment for you outside of your childhood? And I said, POTS, because everyone knows what a stroke is, but no one knows what POTS is. And I look normal, but on the inside, I could be standing up and walking or making a cup of tea could be so challenging, but I look normal. Tell us about what happens for you when people around you are commenting on how well you look, when they see you vibrant, your skin's, you know, looking good, your eyes are clear, you're up, you're probably looking really toned because you're at the gym. What happens for you internally? The hardest thing has been for me, the relationships in my life that have been impacted And I have no idea why through my diagnosis. So there's probably been some friends that I've had that haven't been able to understand and um, therefore have actually distanced themselves because they think it's hard for them. I I have this true belief because I've done a lot of work on this and I've done a lot of reading that empathy is a difficult personality trait to possess. And without empathy... I don't believe we can express compassion because until you can really put yourself in someone else's shoes, you know, or or try to, I'm not saying that we can say to everyone, I understand where you're coming from because we don't understand where everyone's coming from, but we can try to. And until we can truly put ourselves in someone else's shoes and express empathy, then we cannot express true compassion to that person. And I think that's what's happened to me in my, some of my friendships is that people have found it really difficult to understand what was going on. So they become frightened and they sort of, they almost withdraw because it's too difficult to understand. And I'm sure that that happens whether you can see what's going on or you can't. It's the same with a lot of mental health issues. I think people find them so hard to understand because they can't see and they don't under, they, they find it so hard to empathize with that person in that moment. So they withdraw because they don't know what to do. 
ever since this happened to me, I take on the, I guess, the point of view that if I can look someone else's pain straight in the eye and ask how they are, if they don't want to talk about it, then that that's okay, that's on them. But at least I have, I guess, tried, you know, at least I've opened the door. And, and I'm not saying that I'd want to talk about it. Like I, I'm fine to talk about it. But the worst part is that when people don't understand and they withdraw, they don't even try to understand. And, and I'm fine now. I've been so blessed. When I was first diagnosed, I had a really great friend at the time. She said, I want you to start to see a psychologist right now. And I was like, why? And she said, you can't let this change you. You can't let this change who you are, what you do, who you are for your family. And within three weeks, she had me in with a a brilliant psychologist in Double Bay in Sydney. It's one of her friends. And I have seen her and spoken to her ever since, at least once a month. And it's been the best thing I've ever done. What a legend of a friend though, hey, reaching out and again for you having the courage to say yes, because it would have been very easy, I'd imagine, for you to be like, no, not now. There's other stuff to deal with. I've just been given this diagnosis. I'm just going to, you know, get my head around it. There's other things. I've got to have tests. I've got to work this out. Like it would have been very easy to say no at that point. For me, I believe it's been a huge part of my healing journey, to be honest, because there were things that probably I had just buried deep down for a very long time. And I truly believe that it has affected my central nervous system. And we all do, you know, we all do, every single one of us. And to be able to work through that over the last five years has helped me, I believe, to be able to get to the point now where I've had a really good prognosis and I think that I'm going to be able to live a perfectly normal life. I do have to have infusions once a month in hospital, takes four to five hours, but that's, that's fine because it's one and it makes me unwell, but that's one day out of a whole month, 12 days out of a year. I can do that. And before we talk about what life's like now for you, I want to just dip back into when you're talking about the relationships, because I think that's a really, really important topic to talk about. And you said that the relationships are impacted. And one of the things that I, a couple of things, the first thing is I've said to a lot of people, I could not have understood a chronic illness until I had one. At the end of the day, I thought I understood. I had no concept of how hard it is to function on a day-to-day basis and do the very, the things that used to just be part of life now are a chore. Instead of waking up and being like, what are all the things I can do? It's like, what have I got to do today? You know? So I did not at all understand what that would have been like for people. I feel like I have a much better understanding now. And I might not even like, you know, there's whole new levels from where I am and from, I can hear where you are too. But it is something that when you said about the friendships, often people used to say things like, but I saw you out with that person, or I saw you out for dinner, or you're at work today. What they don't see is all the rest of the day, the six hours it took you to get out the door, or maybe you saw that one person and it was it used up all your energy and you had nothing left. It's not about prioritizing certain people necessarily. It's like you don't know where your energy is going to be spent or when it's going to, when that pain's going to come up, like you said, or when you get more news from the doctor and then you were originally going to catch up with everyone on the weekend, but now you just feel like you need a bit of your own time. I don't know. Was that part of your experience? Absolutely. And I think for me, in the early days, especially when I was first diagnosed and I kept trying to go down the path that I am now and competing in the performance horse space and training horses and I'm now running a big business. But early on, 
when it, I was sick a lot of the time, most of the time. I'll never forget one day I'd been competing all day and I felt really unwell. It's almost a trauma for you to realize that you're giving away your old self and you have to you have to let that old self go, but you don't want to let your old self go. And I'd been competing and I started to feel this numbness and very strong weakness on my left side. And I'll never forget, I was walking from the arena back to where we had our horses stabled and I was on a horse and I was loaded up with gear on the horse from the arena and I dropped something on the ground. It fell on the ground on the way over there. I was probably riding about 500 metres or so. Anyway, I just started to cry because I knew I couldn't get off to pick that up because I wouldn't be able to get on again and I couldn't then walk from there to where we had our horses stabled. So I knew that I was in a big bind and I started to cry and one of my friends at the time, we used to be great friends, and she found it really hard to understand my illness. She actually walked past and looked the other way and whether it was just circumstantial, she didn't see me at all, that could have happened. But for me in that moment, I was so hurt because here I was, I couldn't get off, I'd had gear, and then I had another beautiful friend who saw me from, you know, 50 minutes away and come running and said, oh, it's okay, it's okay, I'll get you, I'll get you. And I think in that moment what happened was there are certain people who thought, why does she keep doing what she's doing because she's sick? Why doesn't she just stop? But I was so determined not to stop. And, and it's that fight within yourself, you know, you know you need to stop. I didn't know that I would ever get to the point where I'd feel better. I thought that was just my life. And I didn't know whether I would have another 12 months of being able to walk or when, when I was first diagnosed, I had to go, I was in a surgical operation. Uh, my lumbar puncture site leaked. So I had to go and have a blood patch. So they, you know, take the blood out of your arm and put it in your spine and you have to stay awake so you can tell them when the pressure around your brain is is enough or too much because all my spinal fluid had gone. So then I think that's why it took me so long to feel better because I then had to convert that blood in my spine and my brain back to spinal fluid and that happens over a period of months. So I think that's why I felt so terrible. But in that moment when I was there and it was a few weeks before the futurity and the futurity is a big deal, I had a good horse, it'd take me two years to train that horse and I'd been working towards this point for a very long time. And so I said, I've got this event in two weeks and I really want to compete. And I was laying there on the table. I was in incredible pain because it really hurt. The surgeon said, darling, you're never going to ride again. I really started to cry and I was alone. I didn't have any family down there with me. I was in John Hunter and I, I cried. I'll never forget just the grief and the trauma and the sadness in that moment. So in that moment, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to do it again. I'm so blessed that I have. But I didn't know this is how it would play out in the moment, you know. So you go through that period of time where you feel so unwell, you think this is just my life from now on. Whereas I'm blessed I've been able to get back to a good level of health and still be able to do what I want to do. It's wiping the tears away. Like I, just, I, I, I know, feel you in that moment. I'm just like that moment of just someone saying, because the horses are your life, you know, and there are other aspects of your life, but it's a huge part for someone to make that decision and just tell you on a hospital bed, In one moment, like I just felt that when you said it, but the part that I wanted to ask you about was you said the struggle with self. And I think that might be a really good part to talk to around how do you be a high achiever and how do you strive to actually get the best quality of life you can with what you've been served, right? 
versus that self-care piece and when to say enough is enough. I need to nurture now. I need to stop now. I like, I think sometimes that's a huge struggle. And then layer that with, I loved the girl that I was and now I need to find a new person and a new identity. And who am I now? I don't even know what I'm going to be able to do. Like all of those things going around at once. I feel like now I probably don't even give my diagnosis. I just don't want it to change my life. So I'm so determined that it won't. And I have been the whole way through. When I was first diagnosed, if I had have just given up, went, well, I can't do that now. In the weeks preceding when I was in John Hunter, I received my diagnosis. Three weeks later was the fraturity in Tamworth. And I'd been told I couldn't ride. I had an awesome team of horses that I was going to take. And I sort of, I was too sick really to get out of bed for two weeks. And then my husband said to me, because in that time, like, what am I going to do? Do I, do I scratch? Do I not? You don't get your entries back if you scratch. There's probably $10,000 invested in entries alone, let alone in the horses that we had there. And money's not everything at all, but it was. It's a factor. It is a big factor. And my husband said, if you think you can ride, you should ride because we don't know if you'll ever be able to ride again. And so in that moment, we decided that I would ride. And Jim and the kids and we had an all, uh, some awesome staff, they looked after the horses. And all I did at that event for the two weeks was I'd get up early in the morning, I was juicing and looking after, I guess, my nourishment of my body from a nutrition perspective. I was doing everything I could. I was juicing, I was walking, I was doing yoga, I was meditating, so I'd get up early and do all of that in the mornings. Jim and the kids would look after the horses. I'd come back, I would practice train my horse, and then I'd compete. And when I competed, I would get in that arena, and I'll I'll never forget it. I was so in the moment because I truly thought that I may never be down there on the sand ever again. So I can remember feeling the sand under my feet. I can remember smelling the smells of the arena. I can remember hearing the crowd, listening to the sounds. And I I just wanted to take it all in and I journaled consistently in that whole time because I didn't know if I'd be there again. And because I felt this is what's got me into the mindset piece with my current business is because I was so in the moment and it wasn't about the outcome for me. It didn't matter whether I did well or not. It was just about the process. I was so engrossed in the process because I honestly thought I would never be me in there doing it again. So I had an incredible outcome at that event. It was crazy. I won so much. I won $80,000 in prize money. I went from an amateur rider to a Hall of Fame rider in one event. Just things happen that shouldn't normally happen. And yeah, it was incredible. So I believe if I hadn't have done that, if I had have just let that pass and I hadn't have ridden because I was so unwell, And I hadn't had such incredible support from my immediate family, being my husband and the children. I don't know if I'd be doing what I am today. I think I pushed on in that moment. You know, there was grief and trauma about the fact that I was changing. For that first 12 months after that, you know, I did grieve the person that I was and the person that I couldn't be. I can remember trying to get up in the morning and go for my normal run and I couldn't make it home because I was too unwell and you can't even explain how you're unwell. You just, your body won't work. So I can remember sitting by a river on the bridge and I just, I was so upset because I just wanted to be able to make it home. And I had to ring my husband who was at work to come and get me and take me back again. Just things like that. And, but after that time, we've changed a lot in our lifestyle as a result. And that's been the gold 
in what we've done. We've lived in a totally different way. We've decided that we need to tick the bucket list items that we've always wanted to tick because you, I, I don't know, I really don't know what the future holds. I do have a good prognosis now, but it could change. And But I believe as a part of us, us changing our life, that has helped me get to the place where I am right now with, with actually being in really good health. You know, that's looked like Jim leaving his job. He was a stock and station agent and we had a family business. It was very difficult for him to leave his job, but it come with a high price as a lot of careers do. You know, we would be very busy. And the expectation of what he needed to do for his clients and other people, even if I was unwell, was quite high. So we did that. We decided we wanted to move to a cooler climate. So we moved from Scone to Walker and we bought a property because my husband's just always wanted to run property. So that's been awesome. We're here. We're running our own property. We're in our dream house. I've got the dream equine set up. I've started a dream business. I've studied health coaching. I've been to the States and I've bought myself a gorgeous horse and I've imported her home. I've now set up a great business about, you know, well-being, health with my health coaching course, mindset work and, you know, training performance horses, but also clinics. And yeah, we're living the dream. And if I hadn't had my diagnosis, would we be in the place we are now? I really don't think we would be. I, I honestly, hand on heart, we talked about it, but we didn't have that little nudge we needed just to give us that push. And my diagnosis has been the nudge. Would I give it back? No, I wouldn't. It's pretty powerful. It's incredible when you think about it. it, it I definitely wouldn't. I wouldn't change a thing. And I'm thinking around that mindset piece because I think that's what I'm hearing consistently throughout this whole story is there's something inside you, and I imagine it's between the two ears, that has this incredible drive to do what you can and to not lie down and just say, I'm done. Like that's kind of what I'm hearing, but your inner voice must be pretty powerful and pretty strong and pretty influential to get you through some of those big moments. Because what you're talking about is not easy. Your husband leaving work is not easy. Yes, it was a decision that was a non-negotiable probably, but it doesn't make it an easy decision. Moving towns and starting your friendship group again, not easy. Starting a business, not easy. Like none of the decisions you have made along the way have been easy decisions, even though they may have absolutely been the decision you needed to make in that moment. Yeah, it, you know, exactly what you've said, not easy. But also I believe even the inner work that I've done with a little, you know, a bit of a push from my psychologist as well on the person that I am as I was as a child, as I was, you know, when I look back, we've talked a lot about the good girl. You know, when you grow up and you, you, you're the good girl, you're expected to sit down and children are meant to be seen and not heard. You know, I was raised in a really strong Catholic family. So the expectations, like I said, I wouldn't change it. And I had a very good childhood. But, and I, I just become very aware of this, I guess, for my daughter, because I, sometimes I see myself doing the same things to her in that you expect your children I'm just going to talk from a girl perspective because I was a young girl and I have a young girl as well. But, you know, the expectation to be a good girl, the expectation to get good grades, the expectation to be involved in extracurricular activities, then it goes to the expectation of, you know, going to university, becoming a great mother. And when you are a mother, you're also becoming a great wife 
keeping up the home duties, cooking a really nutritious meal every night, keeping good food in the house, having your children involved in all the extracurricular activities because that's what other people do. And if you don't, then you feel a sense of guilt or shame because you are having, aren't giving your kids opportunities. I look back on that and I feel, you know, we are so expected to, to be everything. And it's really hard. And be the best that we can be at everything. Yes. You know, when we talk about be your best self, that sometimes comes like your greatest strength, greatest weakness. It, trying to be your best self comes at a cost if you're trying to be your best self in every moment of time across multiple platforms. And to everyone, you know, your, your life partner, your children, your parents, your siblings, your friends. That's the thing I've struggled with, I think. And that's the thing I've had to let go of is learning to say no to the things that I would never have once said no to. You know, I, I, I can't be everything to everyone. Number one out of this whole diagnosis and this whole journey is probably learn to listen to myself and do what I need, even if that means saying no to something that my husband or my children want me to do. I'm not saying I would never neglect them or their needs, but like, for example, I used to feel guilty if I didn't cook a meal. So guilty. If I hadn't had dinner ready or organized. And now, ever since my diagnosis, my husband shares the cooking and it's not a big deal. You know, he's stepped up and it's been amazing. Why I never thought that that could happen before I had MS, I'm not quite sure. You know, because that's what my mum did. She looked after my dad all the time to the tea, did the washing, looked after the house, had a wonderful garden, cooked him every meal. And I wanted to be that person for my husband. But then when I couldn't, I felt guilt and shame. Whereas my husband's just like, awesome, I'll cook twice a week or three times a week. But I'd never given him the opportunity probably to be able to do that before. And that's where adversity comes with a richness that you can't get from anything else, you know, like that is the gold that comes out of adversity. Sometimes we open our worlds and our hearts and our minds up to experiences we would never otherwise have done. Definitely. And we change. You know, I'm not the same person I was at university. I'm not the same person I was when I met my husband. I'm not the same person I was when I had my children. We are so different. And I look at, I don't know if you have studied any of Esther Perel's work, but she looks at relationships quite deeply. And I've read a lot of her books and watched a lot of her TED Talks and things around relationships. And she talks about how many times she has evolved and changed as a person and her husband has evolved and changed as a person. And every single time they've met a new person in themselves or their husband, they've been able to go through that journey and fall in love all over again because it's like falling in love with someone new. That has been something that I have clung to and is that I'm not the same person, I'm a different person. But if I can bring my new person in a really positive way to my relationships and friendships, then hopefully they just enrich and they become greater and, you know, you meet new people, I guess. New people come into your life. Mm, and then you've got to take stock in that moment and be like, what am I letting go of and what am I hanging on to and what is new and how do I, how do I grow that part? How do I become more curious about that part of me that I haven't had to tap into before? Or how do I let go of something I once loved that no longer serves me anymore? Yeah, it's so huge. I think the world has changed so much as well around us, hasn't it? We've had a lot of things happen in the last five years that we never could have imagined, you know, one being the pandemic. And 
we have to change and evolve and take the good out of every situation. And I guess that's where I have got to myself in my mindset is I need to live every moment for what it is and take the good out of every moment. Because honestly, if I hadn't have taught for all of those years, if I hadn't have developed or done my 10,000 hours in training my horses to become, you know, be able to train performance horses in the way that I do, all of this has amalgamated to if I hadn't received my diagnosis, I couldn't then now have been able to mesh all three in this beautiful business. And it's where the gold is for me, you know, between the mindset, health and well-being, horse training, and now I can bring that to other people. And if I hadn't have been a teacher, even I wouldn't have the skill set to be able to deliver that probably the way that I can. And if I hadn't had my diagnosis, I wouldn't have the empathy to be able to bring that I do to other people that may come to my clinics or workshops. So it's a, yeah, everything happens for a reason. I really believe that. And Linda, I asked earlier around the high achiever and the self-care and we talked about quite a lot, but what I'm really curious about in that space is what strategies or tools do you use when your high achiever is up, the girl that's the go-getter, determined, I'm sitting at this doctor's until you come and see me, I'm going to get on that horse and I'm going to compete if this is the last time I ever take the arena versus the part of you that knows and I can hear as you're talking, the part that's learned to be like, it's okay. I'm here with you. Let's just be okay with what is. Let's just take the time that we need. Let's be kind to ourselves. So kind of two different parts there. How do they meet and what strategies do you have in that space? When I've done some uh, research into MS diagnosis and there seems to be a link between that type A personality and autoimmune. And I believe it's because this is just my belief in things that I've read. No way am I coming at this from a medical standpoint or, you know, this is just how I believe. But I believe that when we are always on such high alert for such a long time in trying to achieve and trying to tick all the boxes, we put ourselves in that fight or flight, you know, our nervous system is always on high alert. We're always trying to make every minute, every day count you know, to achieve in every second. Just sitting and letting things be is really hard. It's really hard to give yourself the time. I used to find if I was sitting and watching TV, I should be folding washing at the same time. You know, I always found that a Sunday spent as a rest day was a wasted day and I wasn't achieving what I needed to achieve. So my psychologist has come up with this is a tool that she teachers and I absolutely adore it but she believes that health and well-being is like a teepee and that each of the poles or the strings of a teepee is one of the things that keeps us feeling really strong or keeping our teepee really tall and when my teepee is tall that's when I can you know see do be the best version of me that I can be when I'm feeling like my teepee is a little off kilter I have to work out what string or pole I need to strengthen to get it tall again. For everyone, it's different. But for me, you know, I know sleep, nutrition, yoga is a big part of just feeling my body, feeling where I'm sore, knowing, you know, being in the moment. I know it helps keep me really centered. Reading, you know, exercise, and I guess competing on my horses and running my business. I know what 
poles of that teepee, when I'm feeling a little unwell or a little shaky, I have to realize where I need to strengthen myself back up again. And I work to that model a lot. So I feel that I'm not, I'm not right. I'm not there. And I'm going to need to get myself back there. More often than not, it's sleep or nutrition for me, or that I just haven't been paying enough attention to my needs and been pouring too much out of my cup rather than filling it back up. So that has been something that has really helped me just take stock of where I'm at. And I actually keep that image in my book, actually, or my journal. And if I'm not feeling great, I can look and just see and my TP polls may change of what things I believe I need. You know, part of that may be my relationships as well. But I work out what's off kilter and what I need to get me back to center and strong. And what are the signs? So for you to even be alert enough to say, huh, I need to revisit the TP. Like what happens for you in that moment to think that I need to go back and look at where my poles are and which one's dipping and what I need to give my time and energy to? The biggest thing that I find, especially with my health, is I hurt a lot. I'm in pain or I have a lot of muscle spasms. That's for me from a health perspective. And from an emotional and mental perspective, I feel very shaky emotionally and I don't want to see people. I almost want to just go to ground and things that wouldn't normally worry me, I become really anxious about of what someone might be saying or doing or I'm not just on my path. I start to worry about other people and what they're doing. I'm not talking about my family. I'm always going to worry about my family, my children and you know my immediate family, my husband. I try very hard. I don't like to get involved in drama or whatever. But if I see something on the TV, like I don't watch the news often, but if I see something and it upsets me greatly and I find myself spending a lot of time thinking about that, or if I hear some gossip and I find myself thinking about that or talking about that, for me, that's a sign that I'm not on my path and my TP is not strong because I'm starting to think about other things other than just, I guess, what we do or become extra emotional. That's another thing that does can happen for me as well. The reason I asked that, Linda, was to highlight, you know, how important it is for us not just to know how to take stock, because I love that TP analogy, because that is you taking stock and thinking, well, what's off kilter here or or what's out of balance or what do I need to do? But there's a step before that and it's actually identifying in you and knowing yourself well enough or having the people around you able to help identify it for you that perhaps it's a let's just pause for a moment and just check in. Let's just pause and check in with where we are and what's going on. And is there something that maybe we need to bump up or something that we need to like not do as much of? And then come the strategies, you know, then come after that. It's like, okay, well, it's sleep that I need to do more of. How am I going to, is it quality or quantity? And what strategies do I have in my life's toolbox to help me in that space? And if I don't know, who can I ask? What can I read? What podcast can I listen to? Like then you go on the search and the hunt and we've heard you throughout this whole podcast do that. You know, you've often said, oh, I went and looked up this or I researched that or I asked this, you know. So it's kind of like just for our listeners, perhaps it might have been helpful just to track through that because you've kind of talked about that and weaved in and out of that throughout the whole podcast. And Linda, do you have any mantras, just out of curiosity, do you have any mantras that you have on repeat that you pull on when you need to? Any one-liners? Love the process is a huge thing for me. You know, fall in love with the process about being really present. Just show up. That would be my number one is just show up. You know, I just keep showing up, whether it's to the arena, whether it's to the gym, whether it's to a difficult conversation, whether it's to my mum that I give her a call. 
it doesn't matter if I just continually show up, often it gets easier. It's making that step in that moment. The other thing that I often go to is if I'm feeling really unwell, I'm just going to do the basics really well today. And the basics really well might first be to get up and make myself a beautiful cup of coffee. You know, it may be to ring one of my clients if I'm having a tough day. The other thing that we have, and we have a bit of a giggle amongst my staff, and people who are horse people understand this, but I have snaffle days. So when I train horses, there are a whole different lot of, I guess, tack that I can use. A snaffle is a very basic bit. And then I have different gear that goes up from there. Okay. And in a horse's training, as you use more gear, sometimes it can be a tougher day for them to accept the gear that you're using. But also you might have to have really good timing to have the gear do what you need it to do when you're training your horses. Anyway, snaffle is very basic. And so some days if I'm having a really rough day and I turn up to the arena, I say to the girls, girls, it's a snaffle day. And everyone knows what that means. And basically that just means keep it really simple. Let's just get the job done. If I work one cow on each horse with a snaffle, shown up and I've got done the basics and that is way better than not showing up at all. So we have snaffle days and that's even just started in the last probably this year to radiate to away from the arena. So I'll, I might say to Jim, it's a snaffle day today and he'll laugh again. Okay. And that just means do the basics well. And we use teaspoons analogy. I say to my husband, I've used 14 teaspoons already. I have two left for the day. What do you need them used for? You know, so I have 16 teaspoons for the day. It's just pick and choose. I've got friends staying over at the moment. And I said to them last night, look, it's 8.30. It's way past my bedtime. I'm cool to stay up, but you just need to know that I'm using my teaspoons from tomorrow. So when you wake up, I'm going to be lying on the couch chilling for the whole morning. And they were like, yeah, that's okay. And I'm like, yeah, just choose though. Because I can go to bed now and I'll have more teaspoons tomorrow or I can use them now and I'm having a great time. So the reason why I'm tying that in is because it's what you can hear both Linda and I having is some language that is like something that can alert people around us to what's happening internally that they can't see. It's measured and managed. So it's like, this is how it is today. So how are we going to manage that? And it can take away some of that guesswork for us and for them and for anyone in relationship because they're like, oh, okay, well, I, I've kind of got a framework to what that means. When she says that, it looks like this. Huge. And that's been the biggest change, I would say, for Jim and I in our relationship in accepting this chronic illness and how it has impacted us is I used to just get angry. I had so much anger in the first 12 months. I can't even explain how angry I was. And anger is such a hard emotion because it just consumes you and you're angry at everything. You know, I was angry at everything. And now I often just will text. <laughs> I'll text Jim and the kids and I'll say, I just want to let everyone know I had a really tough day today and maybe I just need to go to ground. And they'll go, okay. Whereas before Jim had fired, he'd want to, he was a fixer and I love that about him, but he was a fixer and he couldn't fix it. So he'd try and fix and he couldn't fix and then he'd get frustrated that he couldn't fix. So now no one wins. And no one wins in that scenario. No one wins. The kids suffer, the husband suffers, the wife suffers. Everyone's just in this like, oh, we're here again and we can't get off this roundabout, you know? And so having that language and having that framework and it only comes with 
time and discussions and experience and revisiting, having more discussions and coming up with words. You know, my team, we have a word I'm called Violet when I'm like in my really task focused space because all the niceties are gone. And so when people come in, they can say to me, can you put Violet away for a minute? And I know that means they need me to be present and open my heart up to them as opposed to being like, all right, we've got these five things. Let's get it done. Where are we up to on this? And what are we doing with this? And, you know, in that really like task focus driven, results driven kind of space. I was thinking too, though, our children also have these days. I do. And it's so easy for us to forget as parents, I'm, this is me, that my kids are going to have the 14 teaspoons day or the snaffle days. Snaffle? Snaffle. Snaffle. (laughs) Snaffle. The snaffle days or the, you know, and so just taking a moment and pausing and having a think if you're a parent, do I allow the space for them to have those days or not? You know, if that's something you take away from this, that's a great thing. It's so good. And I know I'm really guilty at that because I then want to fix. Yeah, we all do. It's a human nature to be like, how do I fix? Yeah, just let them have the space to be like that. I want to fix. And that is actually the thing with my children being the ages they are now. I have learnt to allow them the space to have those moments. It's probably my husband struggles to allow them to have the space to have those moments. So we then have the discussion of we're not responsible to, you know, our children's emotional reactions to certain things. Let them have the space to work through that. You can't change it. You can't fix their analysis. You know, my Olivia's nearly 16, Pete's 17. They're young adults. They're about to go into the world. Our job at that age is to help just hold space for them, to be the adults they're going to be the minute they walk out our door. And your Peter's in the UK at the moment playing cricket. They've been and watched the Ashes and having an amazing time and he's playing cricket with his school. They're on a tour and he is there and Olivia's in Texas on the AQHA Youth World Cup as the Australian cutting rep. So she's over there and we were going to go with them and spend a week in the UK and a week in Texas. And there was something in me that said, I think we need to let them have this experience on their own. Good, bad, ugly, fantastic, crying, laughter, best memories ever, whatever it be. Yes. Allow them the space to be young adults. They need to do it on their own. A lot. Some parents have gone, but I just had this feeling it was time for them to just to allow them to do it themselves. And that's what we've done. It was hard. I, sort of when I put Olivia on the plane, I didn't think I would, but I was telling her, you know, where to leave her hand luggage because she was flying from Tamworth to Sydney, Sydney to Dallas. And so, you know, her hand luggage went premium economy from Tamworth to Sydney. And I was explaining how you believe it at the bottom of the stairs. And then mid-sentence, I just burst into tears. And I cuddled her and I was sobbing. And, and it hit me. I, I, I did not expect that emotional reaction at all. But I think that's a start. I realize it's time to let them go and be young adults. Yes. It's hard. Oh, and I love talking about parenting. I do. And I love talking about relationships because I just think connection is such a huge part of being a human being and having a full life. But we do need to finish up. But what I do want to ask you for the audience, because we've heard so many little snippets and everyone's going to be like, oh, let's just ask her what she does. Like, can she tell us what she does with these horses? <laughs> everyone's going to be wondering. So can you just spend a couple of minutes telling us about you now and the, what you're doing with your business and how people can find you and 
who who finds you? Who should be looking? Business is called McCallum Performance and we have a page on Facebook and on Instagram. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. We'll have it in the show notes for anyone that's looking. Thank you. And basically, we run a performance horse training business here. And the performance horse industry in Australia is quite unique because it covers all aspects of, I guess, cow horse training. So challenge, camp draft, cutting. I predominantly train cutting horses, but I also train camp draft horses for people and just get those basics of cattle working for horses that may go off and do other, I guess, disciplines other than cutting. And I compete, I'm a professional trainer and I compete at all the major events throughout Australia. And I have competed in the States, but predominantly here in Australia. And I run clinics and my clinics, people bring their horses or I I run clinics. I've been all around Australia running clinics and it's based around horsemanship, health and well-being. So we combine and mindset. We ride our horses, but I also have beautiful sessions around mindset. We have a yoga session, journaling session, meditation session, because I have believe if we can get to the core of who we are and understand ourselves in that moment, we can then deal with that, leave that in that space and then bring ourselves, I guess, opened up without that extra weight or baggage to the arena, to our horses, and then we get the real gold on our horses. So that's my framework. As you experienced, like we heard that in its true essence, when you said you just showed up, because you thought it it made me cry, but you thought it was the last time you may ever take the arena when you were like, I am just here for the experience and to love the process. Magic happened. It definitely did. I see it every time I have one of my clinics. We start off with an introduction of get to know you session. And every session I've had has been quite emotional. It's interesting. Everyone sort of starts and and I talk about one thing we want to leave behind on this table here right now and don't take it with us to the horses because sometimes there's an analogy where you know I've got to think about dinner so I put a bag on my back I've got to think about getting the kids homework so I put you know witch's hat on my head I've got to think about my husband paying that bill so you put you know half a dozen packs on another shoulder all that is weight that we take to that situation of training our horses and it, it, it relates to life. You know, it's what we bring to our everyday relationships or it's what we bring to our career that doesn't allow us to show up as our true self. So it's just, I guess, making ourselves aware of that stuff and working through that stuff away from the arena or away from life or away from the gym so that we can just show up and be our best selves in that moment. Amazing. I love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Oh dear. My kids, when they're on one of their, they they get on a roll, they can be really funny and very unique, especially my daughter. She's incredibly sassy and she sometimes, her and her friends, when they get together, they make me laugh because they just come out with the best one-liners. So I would say, yeah, my kids and their friends, and I'm so lucky that, you know, they're in that teenage space. I love teenagers. That's why I taught high school. I love it. And when they get together with their friends, they start their one-liners. Yeah, some of the things they say and do, that probably makes me really laugh. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. I've taken so much away from this podcast on so many levels. Just the biggest thing is your courage, your courage to show up for yourself and for your family. And, you know, we heard it time and time again, like you just constantly said, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm, I'm going to have a go anyway. I know how hard that is. I've worked with people for a long time. You make it sound easy. It's really hard. So I just want to highlight that, that 
that you really are incredible. And that's the one thing I'm going to take away from this conversation is hopefully take a little bit of that courage on board and then go and embrace the day and the week and the month and the year. Thank you, Ali. I, it's funny, you know, when you do it yourself, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I'm, you know, incredibly, there's so much courage or brave. I don't even think about my diagnosis every single day. doesn't enter my mind, but I guess that's half the gold. You know, I guess that's not letting it define me. And I just want to be able to live each day and take the most. But in saying that, I always say to my husband, if something happened to me and I died tomorrow, I want you to know I'm so happy and I've done everything I could have done. I, I really am and so grateful for the life that I've lived. So I want to be able to live like that for every one of the new days I'll live on this earth, I guess. That's it. If something happened tomorrow, I'm so grateful for everything that I've done. It's incredible and, you know, it's the gift. It's a gift of adversity. It is. Right there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, sums it up. Wow. Linda's authenticity and raw honesty in sharing her journey with MS was incredible. Her resilience, determination and personal growth has truly left me in awe. Throughout our interview, she showed us what it means to confront adversity head on and refuse to be defined by it. She reminded us that life's challenges can either break us or become the catalyst for transformation. And in Linda's case, she chose the later. Her ability to see beyond her diagnosis and embrace the life she wants to live serves as an inspiration to us all. She shattered the boundaries that society often place on individuals facing a chronic health condition, showing us that our limitations are only as real as we believe them to be. One of the most beautiful aspects of her story was her willingness to be vulnerable and share her innermost thoughts and emotions. She lay bare the complexities of navigating the impact of MS on her health, her performance, her relationships, and most importantly, her relationship with herself. Her openness created a safe space for genuine connection and empathy. Her story serves as a reminder that by embracing our vulnerabilities, we can find strength not only to survive, but to thrive in the face of adversity. To all our beautiful listeners, I hope that her story has resonated with you as deeply as it did with me. Remember that life's challenges may be tough, but they also present us with an incredible opportunity for growth and self-discovery. Linda's unwavering determination to live life on her terms is a testament of the power we all possess within us. Until next time, remember that every challenge you face has the potential to change you for the better. Embrace the lessons, find the silver linings and always believe in your own resilience. And that's a wrap for this week. So have a fabulous week, guys. Those of you that are interested in the sponsorship, reach out to me today. Otherwise, I will see you all next Monday for our next episode on Challenges That Change Us. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.